Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from our business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Later on this show, Canadian preferences around alternative ways to consume cannabis and what to watch for in the edibles space. You're listening to BIV Today. It's time now for our weekly tech panel. Both of our regular guests joining the show remotely today. We have Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa on the line in Toronto, and Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society here in Vancouver. Thank you both for making the time and, and coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Now, we have a lot to cover, but why don't we start with what has been a major international story happening here in Vancouver. And to catch anyone up who's missed this, the CFO of Chinese smartphone maker Huawei was arrested in Vancouver. She's also the daughter of the company's founder. She's facing extradition to the United States over fraud charges, as well as alleged violations of American sanctions on Iran. And there has been significant international fallout. Ali, what do you make of this? What are your takeaways at this point? I'm, I'm just sorry to hear Canada got involved with this. I, I feel uh, I feel like we're, we're caught... Uh, we're a rock up in a hard place right now with this uh, with this move that the the government made. I mean, I guess we have a requirement under uh, our treaty with the U.S. to um, uh, to comply with a request of this nature. Uh, it's it, it caught me off guard when it happened. I, I would you know, but I, I guess I'm not surprised that uh, um, the CFO has uh, extensive real estate holdings in Vancouver. Uh, but it just, it, it seemed like, you know, at least the story is she's, she's, you know, she was coming to town, I think, to, uh, start scouting out, um, location for private schools for her, for her child. <laughs> and, uh, and so, or at least that was part of the intention. And, uh, so it's not, it's not a good news story. It's a, it's sort of, uh, caught everybody off guard. And I can see why the U.S. is trying to send a political message right now with all of the, the negotiations happening uh, between the governments right now—it's it, sort of a, a obviously it's an obvious uh, political uh, move that they're making, but it's just too bad Canada got caught in the middle of it. I can't tell if it's a, a brilliant political move or really bad timing mm. uh, on this. But when we see that 90% of the extradition requests from uh, uh, Canada to the U.S. are granted, it's not looking good at this point for her and except that she's got years of uh, appeals process to go through. So she won't be out of our country for a few years. Hopefully she changes out her bail conditions, because right now I'm guessing being in that prison is not a, a good place. I, I, yeah, and, and um, apparently she also suffers from, for some, from some health issues. So, uh, you know, you have to obviously uh, be conscious of that. I, I don't, I don't, uh, I, I don't think this is going to stick. I think this is a, uh, I think this is an incorrect move that they made. Um, uh, I just, it, this is not the way to send uh, political messages. Um, at least not if you, you know, not if you want, you know, what you want to actually land in a place where you're agreeing on things. This is a, uh, this is, this is getting, this is, a, you know, this is getting a lot of uh, press in, in China. It's getting a lot of press internationally. Uh, the stock market reacted very, very negatively. Uh, mm-hmm. to this move. And so usually that's a sign that it's the wrong move. Uh, well, and I, I, I'm, yeah, and I'm not sure why they gave ZTE, ZTE a penalty, a $1.7 billion penalty. Plead guilty, change your executive, pay us $1.7 billion. 
uh, ZTE and you can you can participate in the technology world and uh, in America. So they gave them a penalty, which they paid, but they didn't give that opportunity, it seems, to Huawei. They just went ahead with the arrest. So I don't know how much more information they have on on the different the differences between what um, Skycom, the Huawei subsidiary, was supposedly do, doing with Iran and what ZTE was doing with Iran. I'm not sure where, you know, what the details are. I don't know who knows that information at this point, but very different reactions to two companies who are uh, accused of similar things. Mm, that's an interesting distinction. Now, the latest here is that a former Canadian diplomat has been detained in China. It's unclear at this point in time whether it's related, although China and Beijing specifically has been clear that there will be consequences if this Huawei CFO is not released. Do you think that there are a lot of things to be very concerned about, Linda, for companies who may be Canadian, they may be American, and they may find themselves in China in the middle of this. I do hope that since we're playing uh, an international game with technology, that we all play by the ground rules that the law courts in our nation have established and that China plays fairly with its uh, foreign diplomats, its foreign companies, that we all follow um, uh, due process. And I, I hope this isn't going to be a reactionary, you've got one of mine, so I'm going to take one of yours, because that isn't the way international business is done on a reputable level. So um, I, I do hope that has nothing to do with what's happening with the uh, arrest of Ms. Mom. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I worry that um, the political environment, the tone of the political environment is such that um, that there is going to be uh, harsh reaction. From the Chinese, and not in, in you know, I think in any other political environment, maybe any other president in the U.S., any other time in our history, in the last few decades at least, I don't, I don't think that there would be as negative a reaction. But I do think that China is going to send a a negative message to Canada here because uh, Canada has had really the only the only thing they are doing here is uh, is complying with their treaty with the U.S. Um, they're acting uh, sort of for the U.S. Um, and it's not it's really nothing to do with Canada uh, otherwise. And so I, I see the Chinese coming down fairly heavy handed here to send a message. And I, I could see a lot more negative before anything starts to, starts to turn around here. Mm hmm. It'll be one to follow. And how you mentioned the the amount of media, anyone who's seen the photos around the the law courts in Vancouver, it's a swarm of people. It looks like the world has descended here in Vancouver and we'll continue to cover it, of course, at BIV. Our next story, location services. I, I want to ask you both, Ali, let's start with you. Do you generally have them on for apps you use on your phone or do you turn them off? What do you do? I keep them on, but only for the apps that require them. So I'm okay. fairly conscious when I add it, when I add a, an application to my phone. You know, what is the purpose of the application? Does it require location-based uh, services to make my life better? And I'll turn it on for those apps that do. You know, it's the the Ubers of the world, the 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 Waze's of the world, uh, other other applications that uh, need to know where you are to better service you. But there, you know, this is an interesting article. I mean, there's there's a lot of companies out there, a lot of apps out there that don't need your location and they, they, they're not adding any value to you, but they're, they're using that information to, uh, to sell to advertisers, which doesn't surprise me at the least bit. I think if I'm an app and I'm investing uh, all kinds of uh, money in my application that I'm looking for ways to monetize that data, uh, it's just, it, it was, a, it was a, bit, it's a big surprise as to the sheer extent of it. 
Yeah, and, and you know, the price of that data that we're giving up as consumers is about half a cent to two cents a month to give up our location to these apps so that they can in turn go on and, and sell that data to make some money. But I, uh, in the glue world, we teach every one of our people how to understand location services, turn them off, leave them on, like Ali said, for the apps that are meaningful to you, maps, et cetera. Maybe Siri wants you need Siri to know where you are if you're in an Apple world. But people are downloading these apps and not looking at the settings. They're not reading the agreements and understanding what is it these people are tracking. And I think we this is another highlight. We have to understand what these apps are doing. We need to really understand what it means when we take an app and use it for free. You are the resource. You are the product. So how are you understanding the trade-off you're making between a free app that's tracking your location and selling the data on and one that perhaps has stricter uh, privacy controls over your location because they can make money in other ways. But understand your device. Lock down location services. Lock down the background app refresh. Know how to tweak them when you need to. Um, and definitely, if you are, are helping a young person or an old person with their device, ensure that all of their devices are locked down appropriately. Yeah, I fully agree with all of that. Yeah. It's the, I've heard this saying, if you're not paying for something, you're the thing that's being paid for. And data is very, very oh. <laughs> valuable. I So this, to catch everyone up, there's an excellent New York Times investigation on how location-based apps, it could be a weather app, GasBuddy was an example used. There are lots of them. It's not just Google or Facebook. How they track and sell your data. And even though the data is generally anonymized, it can be so precise that you could identify someone based on where their home is or what their routines are, uh, is it worth it? Is it worth the value and convenience that we get out of it, Linda? I don't think so. I, I think that there are apps that, that are meaningful to me that they know where, where I am located. I've chosen to uh, live my life. My personal operating system is Apple. Um, and I did that very much based on a user experience and a privacy experience. Apple sells me hardware and services. The other end of the spectrum being Android, Google, they're, they're ad companies trying to really manage my data to give me ads that I'm going to click on and buy something. So I've, I've uh, chosen to stay on the secure end of the world, and we need to be so very aware of what these companies are doing with, with the data they have of ours. And, and, and it's not um, – even though things are free and even though we're giving up this information for convenience, is that worth it? Do you, hyper concerned about it. These these articles like the New York Times is excellent piece really shows how personalized we're getting. And the size of your little blip on that map, that's how accurate the location is. It can be within three feet in some cases. So very, very disturbing. Yeah, I mean the only the only thing I would add to that is uh yeah, you know, I uh, because I'm a Google user and, and quite a heavy Android user uh for that matter. Uh you know I I, I what's concerning here is not it's, a, it's not it really it doesn't really come down to it's an Android issue or an Apple issue to me. It's the fact that these apps, which exist on both devices and actually probably exist on many other types of devices as well that we're not talking about today, like personal computers, like uh, Windows phones and any other devices that are out there, Blackberries. Uh, these apps exist multi-platform. They're, they're on all platforms and they're doing and they're taking the same information. They're tracking you uh, no matter what device you're on. Uh, they're actually in your homes as well on some of your home devices. It really is uh, at the application level, at the app level, and that's what everybody needs, needs to be conscious of uh, when you're installing an app to, to pay very close attention, uh, regardless of platform, uh, pay close attention to 
those settings and uh, what you're saying yes to. Yeah, exactly. And, bring, and pay close attention to the devices, like Ellie just said, bringing into your life, the wearables, the smart home technology, the internet of things. Those are all trackable, easily trackable devices in some cases. So it's a, it's a new world. It's, it's a very new world and it's eyes wide open now. We've had enough reminders that our privacy is of paramount importance and we are in control down. So we need to understand how to do that. There's clearly a level of responsibility tied to the individual, but this article, it points out that a lot of the apps, they'll have some kind of a pop-up that says you're consenting to this. It's often not very clear. And the privacy agreement and the consumer contract are often somewhere else that you then as a consumer have to go and see. Do you think, Linda, we'll get to a point in North America where companies will be required to be very, very clear with what they're doing with data? Or is that ultimately going to be the consumer's responsibility to do their research and understand what they're signing up for? I think it's a contract between the app developer and the consumer, and it's in their best interest to help us understand why they need our uh, location to make a better experience for me within their app. I'm a little baffled by Apple now gives you the option, for instance, to say uh, you can see my location always, never, or while using the app, but they don't give you any more detail about what that location that is going to be used for. So why aren't we making this more clear up front in the pop-up and not burying it under those privacy and terms of um, end user license agreement terms. We need to make it really clear because in, in a lot of cases, this, this isn't a bad thing to know your location. I love that Maps knows where I am and tells me how I can most quickly get home. But uh, we need to understand what they're gathering and why they're gathering it. And that should very much be in the forefront of that user interaction. And I think that would build a, a stronger connection, a more positive connection between the user and the app developer. Yeah, I mean, uh, from 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 my perspective, I'll just I'll just uh, finish the point. I, I mean, while I totally 100% agree with Linda, I uh, I, I worry that uh, you know it's really going to depend heavily on what jurisdiction we talk about going forward. I mean, I think you're just going to have different countries that are going to take this a lot more seriously, different regions in the world. Uh, you you know, we we all know that Europe is going to take this a lot more seriously and probably be at the forefront. Of of uh, of making sure these disclosures are, are more rigorous and that are they're more transparent and probably North America will lag far behind as it always does. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. the EU very much has been a, a, a leader on this file. We'll see if we follow suit here in Canada. Final story. Speaking of apps that do collect location data, Uber is long believed to be going through with an IPO and the Wall Street Journal is reporting that the company has filed preliminary paperwork to do just that. The speculation is that Uber as well as Lyft could actually go public in the first quarter of next year. Interestingly, though, Uber, not profitable, reportedly lost about a billion U.S. dollars in its third quarter. Ali, if and when we see Uber go public, do you think this will require the company to change their business model? Um, I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure. I have to look through the financial information that they've disclosed to understand that better. I, I don't know if they're on a, traje- a trajectory towards profitability already, Haley. And right now it's just, uh, you know, a function of, uh, of just building a little bit more scale and getting there. If they are on that, uh, on that path, then perhaps not. Um, but the timing of these, IP- of these IPOs certainly does not, uh, surprise me given, uh, the turmoil in the market right now. 
if they are in fact losing a billion dollars uh, in the year or somewhere close to that and are going to be in a position where they need to go back to the market to raise money, uh, the public markets should support both deals, uh, assuming that we don't go into some major uh, major down cycle. And so the timing is right. You do this, you, they should be filing now uh, uh, while they still can. And if, uh, if the market holds, and I think they'll both be successful in raising quite a bit of capital. When it comes to Uber's culture, it's already faced a lot of scrutiny as a company, Linda. Do you think Uber becoming a public company will require any changes or will Uber then be held to different standards? What do you think? Certainly, they'll have uh, different standards on a business level to deal with as a public company, but they're going to be able to get into the, the market and grab billions of dollars out of it through the IPO and throw that into infrastructure. Ride hailing is not profitable for Lyft or Uber at this point, no matter how Lyft manages their numbers. Uh, but these billions of dollars to expand the market and expand their tech and you know expand on their concepts is going to be critical for them. Uber saying, we don't want to be ride hailing. Less than 50% of our goal is ride hailing. We want to get into other areas that maximize our tech, our transport, back to our data again, all the data we've collected on our customers, they're, they're going to start to monetize in an advertising way. So uh, this is a great opportunity for them to put the pieces in place to become a profitable company that ride hailing is just one part of. Uh, yeah, and I think, uh, Haley, to to the point that I think where you were going with uh, uh, in regards to their sort of prior business practices and sort of the, the poor tone from the top that they've had in the past, I think 100% it will be necessary for them to uh, turn this, like turn a new a new tide heading into uh, being a public company. I mean, there's just a different level of responsibility that you have as a public company. Uh, you're sorry, you're going to be responsible to investors, responsible to a wider range of stakeholders, and uh, I think the new, the new CEO has actually done quite a quite a good job of turning uh, turning the corner for Uber. And you know, yet we haven't seen a, we haven't seen too many negative stories in the last. Uh, in the last year versus I think last year where we were probably talking about it on every show. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think they're doing the, what they need to do to uh, become a public company. But once they're there, uh, certainly the, the responsibility won't go away. Yeah, it continues. Two very big deals to watch for. We'll see if they come in the first quarter of next year. For now, Ali, Linda, as always, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Linda Fawkes, founder and CEO of Glue Technology Society, joining us on the line in Vancouver, and Ali Pordad, CEO of Progressa, on the line from Toronto. New research from Tidal Royalty shows that just over half of British Columbians are open to alternative ways of consuming cannabis, be it edibles, beverages, topicals, or even chewing gum. Paul Rosen joins me now. He's the chairman and CEO of Tidal Royalty, which provides royalty financing to the regulated cannabis industry in the U.S. He also co-founded Pharmacan Capital, now the Kronos Group. He joins me on the line. Paul, good to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. If we take a look at this from a demand perspective, what do your survey results tell you about how the recreational cannabis market might evolve when it comes to things like edibles? Sure. I think it really confirms a consensus amongst uh, the industry executives and the consumers and all the, all the stakeholders that this is becoming an upstream industry where what we see is cannabis today, which primarily is consumed through smoking or vaping, 
will really transform into a whole array of products where cannabis is an input into a product, such as topicals through cosmetics or analgesics, and of course, uh, orally consumed through edibles. So we see it as uh, uh, inevitable. And when Health Canada allows the introduction of edibles, we think it will become uh, edibles and other uh, uh, types of alternative delivery. We think it will dominate. Interesting. I've heard from people in the industry, too, that in Canada and probably North America, there is an anti-smoking culture that we have. Many people were raised, especially if you're talking to the millennial generation, that smoking's bad. Do you think that's a stigma that might sort of impact the smoking of cannabis and that's why you expect to see more demand for alternative ways of consumption? Yeah, certainly. I think that you know, smoking cannabis is different than smoking tobacco. Uh, I'm not a physician, but I read a lot, and it seems that it's not considered a carcinogen, but it's still considered a lung irritant. And I, I don't smoke when I consume cannabis. I did when I was younger because that would have been the only way. But I prefer to leave my lungs out of it if I had the choice, so I could have the full, if you will, wellness experience or beneficial experience. Uh, as a health-minded consumer, I absolutely would prefer the healthier alter- alternative. And I think that's going to be, that's really sort of like a large sort of cultural trend is, you know, ha- health and wellness. And this really uh, supports and will likely uh, surf off health and wellness. And there will, smoking will always be part of cannabis culture, but especially amongst new users uh, that don't want to smoke and don't come from a smoking culture, uh, they'll look for products that they can consume that don't require smoking or vaporizing. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned these alternative forms. You expect them to dominate once they're legal here in Canada. From a company perspective, who do you think the, the target audience is going to be for products, again, like chewing gum, topicals, edibles? Everybody. Literally everybody. literally everybody. Yeah, I think we were, this idea of fragmentation is gone. We, mm. the, as, a, you know, as, a, as a cannabis executive, I don't, I look at the entire population from even including children. If you bring medicine, like for example, uh, Epidiolex GW Pharmaceuticals product is aimed at children with Dravet syndrome. So if you include accredited medical formulations all the way into wellness, all the way into recreational, I think you're talking about uh, the whole cradle to grave experience. And uh, there's no one that you would imagine isn't in some way, shape or form likely to consume cannabis directly or indirectly. It'll be that woven into the fabric of our consumer culture and our wellness culture. That's very interesting. Now, again, going back to this survey, it did point out some differences province to province in terms of the the kinds of alternative consumption means Canadians might prefer. Uh, What did you notice, say, BC compared to the rest of Canada? Sure. Well, I think BC, our our title loyalties research indicate that of all the provinces, British Columbians are the most interested in edibles. We Our polling shows that um, BC is really the most experimental province with over half of British Columbians beginning their interest in alternative cannabis consumption methods. Uh, by contrast, Ontario, also very close, but a little bit lower. And the way I, I really don't, don't think there's much to that, to be honest, I think that's just uh, uh, that our polling is not meant to be perfectly scientific, but it's meant to sort of identify Uber trends and drive this industry. So the fact that BC is the most progressive, I think is probably predictable, given that it has in some ways the most sophisticated gray market cannabis economy. 
Uh, there were edibles available in British Columbia long before, on dispensary shelves long before they were in Ontario, and there's still several provinces where it would be hard to find, although now you've got like direct shipping. So I just think it's more reflection that British Columbians have had more experience, and it shows what happens when you allow the consumer or the patient to have legitimate alternative delivery products for cannabis. They're going to embrace them, and BC embracing them is really a symptom of the fact that they've had a head start. And I don't see it that as an anomaly or an outlier. I see these trends are global and they really transcend pretty much any any border. I think it'll be the same. You'll see cannabis consumption being, I think, uh, pretty much similar you know, country to country, never mind province to province in terms of how much and how we consume it. That's very interesting. Now, you mentioned that we're still waiting on the regulatory framework for things like edibles. But once that's in place, how long do you think it's going to be until, say, you can walk into almost any bar and and buy yourself a cannabis-infused beverage? What's the the rollout you're kind of expecting and the timeline tied to it? I think it's in the foreseeable future. Uh, I think there's pressure on our regulator, and I will say our regulator, Health Canada, has done an outstanding job on this entire file since inception in 2013. Full credit to them. But I think they feel some pressure to hasten the delivery of the products that are in demand. Ultimately, our goal here in, if you will call it, new cannabis, is to shift all consumption from the gray or black market into the regulated market on the thesis that it's a better market. And so I think the government feels some pressure to hasten the, the introduction of alternative products like edibles because it's available in the black market. And ultimately, if the true goal here is public safety, uh, the best way to improve public safety is to d- deliver cannabis in an audited, regulated, accredited, and uh, verifiable uh, delivery uh, or industry. So all of that plays towards the government wanting to speed it up, which I think means that if you want me to pick a date, I think we're like about two years away from that scenario where you will be able to order infused beverages or infuse food in restaurants, and likely even sooner than that. I think it'll come shortly after the introduction of edibles. Uh, what we don't know clearly is what is the responsibility in terms of licensing uh, and when you're just a restaurant using it as an ingredient versus a reseller, uh, how onerous will oversight be on that type of stuff. It'll get filled in, but it's not something that's too far away in the future. It'll be here in next year or two for certain. Interesting. Now, when you have a, a look more broadly and perhaps even globally at who some of the dominant players are going to be, we've heard reports of, say, the most cores of the world and other beverage companies racing to try and position themselves within sure. this opening market. Who are you looking at? Who might be some of the, the main players when well, this I mean, goes global? Sure. We've seen now this morning uh, with the investment into Kronos from what was called Philip Morris previously, a uh, new name now. But uh, we've seen now one of the largest tobacco companies in the world and one of the larger alcohol companies in the world, Constellation Beverages, essentially acquire controlling stakes in two large Canadian licensed producers uh, this morning, Kronos, uh, Constellation investing into Canopy Growth. So ultimately, we see that this is going to be big business and the Canadian companies have a remarkable head start globally. And we're seeing that large conglomerate multinational corporations now on two occasions have uh, entered the cannabis industry through acquiring a controlling interest of the Canadian licensed producer within the national footprint. So I do see this as being big business and ultimately the large beverage companies will all have meaningful cannabis verticals and will be acquiring cannabis companies as well large CPG companies like Procter & Gramble and Unilever. Other uh, other tobacco companies, other alcohol companies will follow their competitors, uh, in, uh, follow suit 
amongst their competitors and keep up. The pressure's on on companies that are looking at cannabis that are in consumer product goods to fit or beverage uh, as part of CPG. And the pressure's really on them to figure out a cannabis strategy. And as their competitors begin to execute on cannabis strategies, it raises the stakes and it sort of expedites the overall maturation of our industry. So mm-hmm. I see it as ultimately being a good combination of you know large big business with a lot of room for craft and i think that's really important that we have room for craft in our industry that it not all just be corporate behemoths and that we honor and sort of stand on the shoulder of a lot of people that work very hard uh, that built sort of the foundation of this industry and i see that playing a meaningful role in the development of a craft industry and we might look at it as beer where there are both a lot of uh, independent boutique craft companies as well as multinational beverage companies that are uh, operating at a different scale Mm-hmm. You mentioned that Canadian companies have a, an advantage here. They certainly do. Is that something they're going to be able to maintain their position in the marketplace? What do you think? Mm, I, yes, absolutely. I think we're uh, uh, absolutely, we have a unique recipe here in Canada. We have a very, very, very uh, intelligent banking community and investment community, largely based in Toronto, but really across the country. We've created some of the great cannabis companies uh, in history, really. It's a short history, mind you, but uh, mm-hmm. we dominate right now. We really do dominate our licensed producers, augmented by our uh, federal government's vision on this fall, have resulted in uh, a whole bunch of unexpected consequences, primarily that Toronto has now become the global capital for the financing of the global cannabis industry. And the Canadian Securities Exchange is listing several companies from out of country, primarily the United States, but other jurisdictions like Colombia and um, Jamaica and Israel listen on our exchanges uh, because this has become sort of the world's uh, financial center for global cannabis. So I think Canada, this is not an anomaly. I think the companies that are born out of Canada, including the ones I've been involved with myself, hopefully now including Federal Realty Corp, uh, regardless of where we're pursuing our interests, uh, the fact that we're pursuing it from Canada fortifies our, our business and our business plans and the execution of our business plans. Certainly a fascinating time. And Paul, I want to thank you for coming on the show to share your insights. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's Paul Rosen, Chairman and CEO of Title Royalty. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. Subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. You can share our show on social media, listen to episodes, and read more business news over at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening.